Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. In today's author interview, I sit down with historian David Reynolds and talk about his book, Mirrors of Greatness, Churchill and the Leaders Who Shaped Him. As I'll mention in the beginning, there's a lot of books about Churchill available right now. But what really does set this one apart is that it doesn't look at Churchill in isolation. That is, it's not a pure biography. It looks at Churchill vis-a-vis the important figures in his life that made him the man and the leader that he was. Now, that being said, as I mentioned, there are a lot of books about Churchill, and I'm assuming you know what Churchill I'm talking about before I even give his first name. So, I'm not going to give a long intro here. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, link is in the show notes if you'd like to purchase the book. And here's the interview. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, and welcome back. As I mentioned before, I'm sitting down with historian David Reynolds. And we're doing his most recent book, Mirrors of Greatness, Churchill and the Leaders Who Shaped Him. And I want to start out with sort of the most obvious question that I'm sure you get all the time. But, you know, it's it's worth asking. There are clearly a lot of biographies about Winston Churchill already. There's a lot of books about him. So I'm curious about what inspired you to write this specific book and in what ways is it a little different from any other Churchill biography that you might pick up? Okay, well, I would say that, as you say, there's so many books, but I think a lot of them take Churchill as a kind of standalone figure, uh, a genius figure, 
And indeed, he was in many ways. People said it at the time. It was a word they used. This was somebody uh, unusual, somebody, as um, Herbert Asquith, the British prime minister before the First World War, said with that uh, that touch of genius, the zigzag a streak of lightning through the brain. So it's it's kind of, yes, Churchill is seen that way. But if we see him in isolation, I think we tend to get a distortion, uh, a distortion which is helped by the fact that Churchill, of course, wrote his own life. He was always writing his own biographies at different times in it. So we get the authorised version, if you like. And what I wanted to do was to pick up on Churchill as somebody who was a genius, but also learnt as he went through his life, learnt from other people. And so the leaders who shaped him uh, in this book, Mirrors of Greatness, are people who act as mentors uh, or acted as uh, facilitators of his career or acted as obstacles to them. So, for example, I would say that um, his finest hour is uh, due in significant part to Adolf Hitler because it's Adolf Hitler who creates this catastrophic situation in 1940 with the fall of France. And that is when Churchill becomes prime minister and he rises to the occasion. So that's my, if you like, novel take on Churchill. It's seeing him through other eyes, seeing what he learned from them and how they perceived him as well. And I think there's a lot to that. And and the book is sort of designed with each chapter focusing around one of the individuals who influences life in one way or the other. But kind of going back to something that you you just mentioned about Adolf Hitler, and I was really taken by one of the sentences in the introduction. You wrote, after May 1940, the rest of Churchill's political life was improvisation. I, I was interested in that. I wonder if you could talk about it a little bit. Like, what did you mean by that? What do we mean by that? Is he purely reacting? And if is that something that's just not really appreciated in some of the other works on Churchill? I was taken by it. Well, thank you. I, I mean, it was something that I've been working on Churchill for a long time, but it came to me in doing this book. And that's part of the fun of writing a book. It's not that you get down all those ideas you've pre-packed in the process of writing. As you know, you actually discover things and see things in different ways. And what I realized is that this is a man who becomes prime minister on May the 10th, 1940. He has wanted to do that all his life from being a tiny boy. Uh, And it's been a real uphill struggle at times. Uh, And in that first week, when he's forming his coalition government and his eyes are mostly on domestic politics, this is the week that finally the real war starts on the Western Front in France. The so-called phony war comes to an end. Hitler attacks and he attacks... uh, not through Belgium. Uh, He does attack through Belgium, but the primary thrust is round the side of the British and French armies uh, who've moved into Belgium uh, and through the Ardennes, supposedly impenetrable, uh, impenetrable, and then moving on to the coast uh, to Dunkirk. Uh, And within a week, Churchill can see that this, uh, the French are out of the war. 
he turns up in Paris on the 16th of May to have a crisis meeting. He says to the French chief of staff, General Gamelin, uh, OK, so this has happened. The, the, the Germans have come around your flank. Where's your strategic reserve? Où est la masse de manoeuvre, as Churchill puts it in his best French. And Gamelin, tall Frenchman, he shrugs his shoulders and he says, aucune, there isn't one. Churchill is incredulous. No, no strategic reserve. He, he just walks over to the windows to try and work out what he's going to say. And down in the gardens below of this grand uh, house in, in Paris, he can see what he calls venerable functionaries, uh, elderly gentlemen pushing wheelbarrows of documents onto bonfires. So within a week of the real war, the French are burning their archives. They're planning to evacuate Christ, uh, Paris. So Churchill has started this war on the assumption it will be kind of like the last one, that the anchor of this would be the British-French army alliance on the Western Front. France has fought all through 1418, right through those four years of, of the First World War. Within the first week of this second war, he can see France is out. And indeed, Britain is going to be really in danger. So when I say it's improvisation, this is a man who has got to, in a sense, turn on a dime and think, what are we going to do now? And he cannot uh, uh, ventilate his deep feelings. And he has real anguish, as I show in the book, real worry about this. He has to project a sense of confidence. But he's looking from then on for allies and the, the turn to the United States, first of all, and then in, from 1941, when Hitler attacks Russia, the turn to the Soviet Union, uh, who, which, of course, is manifesting a, 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 an ideology of Bolshevism that Churchill has been against all his life. But now he's got to work with the Russians. So when I say the rest is improvisation, it's really that sense of of what this man suddenly has to do the moment he has got to the pinnacle of his, his, his aspirations. And that's interesting because our image of Churchill is so much the bulldog, the man with the, the jutting uh, jaw and determination, robust, unyielding and so on. And what I'm saying is, Here's a man who is actually, he just has to be really nimble on his feet. And um, that's really the story of the rest of, the, uh, of, of his political life. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think it's worth noting, especially for an American audience, that you know, we tend to be taught World War II sort of post-1941 almost. So it's, it's worth remembering that you know, after the fall of France, which happens so quickly, you know, Great Britain has to stand alone. It, the, the Soviet Union is not in this contest yet. And that is just earth shatteringly different from how everybody expected this conflict to go if it was going to go any direction whatsoever. So it's, it's such a change. And I think it's a really interesting point to think about, because you're right, this is the person that is often just seen as sort of this rock, this stalwart figure, who is unmoved by everything, but he has to he has to think on his feet so quickly now to come up with a strategy to keep Great Britain uh, alive um, throughout 1940 and suffer the wrath of Nazi Germany. Well, going on to sort of the book and itself. That's really oh. part of the book is, the, is this idea that we need to move away from our stereotypes about Churchill. And all the way through the book, that's what I'm trying to do is contest these firm, fixed ideas that we've got. 
So yes, sorry, you had another question. No, yeah. it's fine. I think it's a. I think that is what the value in some of these books are. Um, I think that that's one of the weaknesses in textbooks is that we have to boil things down to such small points that oftentimes it's not as nuanced and therefore sometimes almost inaccurate as a result. But I wanted to ask a little bit, because and speaking of not knowing things, I didn't really know anything about Winston Churchill's father, uh, Lord Randolph. Um, and, you know, that's really the, the opening of the book. It's the first principal chapter. And you write, um, Lord Randolph's death, you know, he dies early, though a devastating shock, proved truly liberating for his son. So I'm interested to know about his death, but also what kind of relationship the two of them had, if 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 really much of one, because I, I just kind of want to know how that influenced his life later on. So um, Churchill is the son of a, uh, an aristocratic family. His father was the younger son of uh, the Duke of Marlborough. And maybe some of your listeners have been to Blenheim Palace, which is where Churchill was born and where the Dukes of Marlborough have had their place ever since. John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, won the Battle of Blenheim against the French in 1704. So there's a tremendous sense of English history here. Um, Lord Randolph Churchill uh, has a brief meteoric career in politics for about five months in 1886. He is Chancellor of the Exchequer, so that's like Secretary of the Treasury. and uh, he takes on the Prime Minister, uh, Lord Salisbury. He loses that battle completely. He's out of the cabinet. Uh, and then he wastes away. Uh, in, he dies in the 1890s. Winston Churchill believes from syphilis. It's a very sad and, and, and tragic end. But all the way through, uh, Lord Randolph views his son as uh, incompetent, a failure, uh, bad marks at school, uh, a real disappointment. And the, the, the letters that he sends his son, some of them are really brutal in just saying uh, how almost he, he, he's totally disappointed in the boy and, and almost despises him. And there's a sense really that, uh, as one of Churchill's good friends said, throughout his life, Winston worshipped at the altar of his unknown father, uh, meaning that this was a man that Winston would love to have worked with, would love to have earned this man's uh, approval, his father's approval, and it didn't happen. And uh, so that's something that was always there. The other thing that is is he learns from his father or gets from his father, his father dies in his 40s. Churchill, Winston Churchill is convinced that he too will die young in his 40s. And if uh, he wants to make his mark on history, which is definitely the way he sees this, he's going to have to move fast. And so that helps to explain this um, kaleidoscope of activities in the late 1890s after he graduates from Sandhurst, which is the British equivalent of West Point Military Academy, uh, uh, where he's just going wherever Britain's fighting a war. He's getting himself in danger because he wants to attract attention. He wants to become regarded as a hero. So whether it's the northwest frontier of India or uh, the Sudan or, or down in South Africa, 
Africa in the Boer War that the British fought against the Dutch settlers there. Winston's there, right in the thick of things, in danger, and then also making sure that everybody knows that, not just through odd accounts in their own newspapers, because, but because he's writing the newspaper reports and he's writing books about his exploits. So it's, it's like... This is a man who's just got to do it before he goes the same way as his father. I'm always, as you're talking, I'm just reminded of of other politicians who are constantly sort of writing their their own stories. Um, From antiquity, of course, you have Caesar, you know, who writes in the the third person, you know, whenever he's he's talking about himself. So he does a, a great job of sort of propelling this narrative forward from such a young age. I mean, that's that's remarkable. I can't think of many other people. Um, of that age who are sitting down and writing (laughs) their own biography. He says himself later in life, words are the only things that live forever. And I think he has that that sense. He doesn't believe that there's an afterlife. He doesn't believe he's not got a a, a, a Christian piety. Uh, Eternal life is going to be whether you have inscribed yourself in history. And he's the one who's going to do it. Oh, a very, very Homeric um, perspective um, on on the past, and I, I I find that a little bit admirable, I suppose, in my own way. Um, I want to talk about David Lloyd George um, because he you write about his impact on Churchill, and for American audiences, you, you probably know him as the Treaty of Versailles um, negotiator for um, for the Great Britain, but he does a lot more than that, of course. He's prime minister starting, I believe, in nineteen sixteen, maybe nineteen fifteen. Um, but as you write, he has a, a huge impact, positive and negative, um, on Churchill. So I was hoping you could explain that a little bit because I thought that chapter was really well, interesting. Churchill starts as a, a Tory, a conservative. That was his father's party. Uh, and he feels that the Tory party soon after his father's death has, has lost uh, any engagement with the currents of democracy that are developing and which his father had espoused. He crosses, therefore, to the Liberal Party, and Lloyd George is the, one of the leading new liberals of the time. Lloyd George is a charismatic uh, politician from Wales uh, with uh, a radical background, a, a Baptist family, uh, very, very different from uh, Churchill's background, certainly not one of the elite. Also a man with a really sort of feline political antennae about other people, about moods, political moods and so on, much more acute than Churchill had himself, I think. And uh, it said that Lloyd George was one of the few people uh, who Churchill really looked up to. And Lloyd George and he worked very closely together in the 1900s on a lot of different reform movements, reform legislation to do with uh, conditions of of working people, uh, things to do with the um, uh, growing um, development of pensions and things like that and social insurance. Uh, And then they also moved rapidly into the war from 1914, the First World War. And Lloyd George was the person who helped to rescue Churchill after he'd had this uh, real complete, apparent total collapse of his political career over the attempt to um, 
knock out Germany's allies, the Turks, from the uh, the war by sending a fleet into the uh, Mediterranean, into the uh, 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 Black Sea to try and uh, get to the uh, the Turks out of the war. It's a, t- a disaster, and he's blamed for it. He's a, Churchill's a scapegoat. Lloyd George is the one who brings him back into politics, um, and Churchill's grateful for that, and he also resents it. Uh, and then what's interesting, by the end of the, the career, Lloyd George is um, uh, out of politics from 1922, but there's a feeling in the, um, the Second World War that maybe Lloyd George will come back. But Lloyd George is, by then... Uh, is tainted by appeasement. He had supported appeasement of of Hitler in the 1930s. uh, And uh, he is not in any way the kind of leader that would work for Britain in 1940. And he knows that and Churchill knows that. And so by the end, I think, and and I write this, there's, there's a sense that Churchill has done one better on his original mentor. So there's an interesting uh, trajectory, an arc to this story. But Lloyd George is one of the very significant politicians of of British history and probably one of the three or four major prime ministers of the the 20th century. Well, I'll get to appeasement in in just a second, but I I was interested because you don't read a lot about Winston Churchill, or I suppose many politicians' attitudes towards women um, in the early 20th century, you write that um, the most interesting tension between Winston and Lloyd George was over women. I find that interesting, and I I wondered if you could explain a little bit about that, because of course this is the era of suffrage um, in the United States as well, so a lot of things are changing, and so I thought that that was a really interesting point. Yes, well, it, 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 there's a sort of uh, a double meaning to the story. Uh, on the one hand, in personal terms, Lloyd George is a notorious womanizer, a philanderer, and indeed, for much of his career, including the time when he's prime minister, he is basically uh, uh, married to his wife, long-standing wife from Wales, um, Margaret, but he's also got as a mistress uh, his uh, one of his private secretaries from from Whitehall, um, uh, Francis Stevenson, and so this is a uh, is well known within the inner circle, and it certainly taints Lloyd George's image. Whereas Churchill is, as far as we know, very loyal to his marriage to his wife and indeed I write about her in the last chapter because I think his whole career would not have been possible without the um, the 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 uh, sacrifices she made now she is to take back up your other point about women's suffrage she was a a, 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 a child of a, a gentry family um, so reasonably well placed certainly um, in status uh, she is uh, in in some ways, what we would in England call a blue stocking. She's sort of a, a woman who's would have, in a different circumstances, have gone on to university. But her mother is quite clear that that's not what a society young lady should do. Uh, uh, Clementine is very vociferous in favour of women's suffrage, suffragettes. She writes about it and so on, um, and. Winston is pretty clear that uh, politics is a, a man's business. 
He doesn't, he's not sympathetic to women having the vote. It's clear in later life he feels that it, it was actually damaging to do that, that it, in a sense, it, it weakened the fibre of British politics. Uh, but um, so Clementine knows when she marries him, and it's a real love affair. I mean, they fall deeply in love with each other very rapidly uh, when they meet. Uh, Clementine knows what she's getting here, and she says that she realizes that Winston is going to be her life's work. Uh, so she makes significant sacrifices. But uh, and she is a, a huge support to him. But she also provides a kind of intellectual input to his his life. She reads pretty much all his speeches. She comments on them. She talks back to him. Uh, she's not a doormat, uh, and um, and she's somebody who uh, really, without that, without that support, she he would not have been. I think the leader. Uh, he, he actually became. Well, that's very interesting. Um, well, let me ask you now about uh, if there's two names an American audience knows in terms of British politicians in World War II, it's Churchill, of course, and then probably Neville Chamberlain. Um, and Chamberlain and Churchill are, are portrayed typically as opposites. Um, uh, Chamberlain is all appeasement. Churchill is all iron. Um, you know, Church Chamberlain is weak. Churchill is strong. So on and so forth. I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, like, is that a, a fair assessment of both men, or are we making it far too black and white? Uh, yes, I think there, there's a considerable simplification here. There's also a grain of truth. Um, Chamberlain is. Um, uh, he comes from, uh, uh, rather like Churchill, he comes from a political dynasty. He is the son of a major Victorian politician, arguably more successful than Winston's father, Lord Randolph, Joseph Chamberlain, Radical Joe, as he was known, um, industrialist from Birmingham in the centre of, of, of Britain. Um, and um, uh, Neville is the younger son of uh uh, of of um, uh, Joe Chamberlain, the elder brother is the one who looks was always groomed for politics. Was uh, was uh, sent to uh, to um, university and all the rest of it. Uh, whereas Neville was sent to a a sort of industrial training college in Birmingham because he would be the businessman. He would keep the business going. Um, so there's always a sense of this one being pushed around. And what I think gives Neville Chamberlain the the, the, the push in his life is really that sense of being the, the disregarded younger son and needing to make something of it. And he works his way through politics in the First World War, uh, Lord Mayor of Birmingham and then into politics, and makes his mark within the Conservative Party. And he and Churchill work quite closely together in the 1920s because they're both inclined to be reformers uh, and they do cooperate in some of the, the, the work that's going on in terms of um, reform of housing and taxation and so on. Um, but Chamberlain develops a sense of respect for, for Churchill. Indeed, he says, you know, this is a man of genius. But he says that, you know, he's too interested, he, Winston, is too interested in the, the splash of colour, uh, the big, you know, the big dramatic gestures. 
And Chamberlain says, uh, accuracy of detail is beyond his ken, beyond his understanding. So he doesn't do detail. He, he does the big picture and makes a big impact. And what's, what's interesting about this is that gradually the, the roles turn around. Um, Chamberlain, who is the man of detail and care and so on, In 1938, when faced with the possibility of war with Germany over Czechoslovakia, uh, a war which everybody in Britain, in British politics, is convinced will begin with a major German air attack on London of massive scales. They grossly exaggerate it, but that's the fear. And Chamberlain is the man in 1938 who really goes for the dramatic gesture for the splash of colour uh, he gets into an aeroplane, which he's hardly ever been in before. He's n- nearly 70. And in, th- in three weeks, uh, uh, in two weeks, he has three meetings. He flies to Germany and and meets Hitler face to face to try and prevent a war over um, Czechoslovakia. Now, flying and seeing somebody is you know, normal nowadays. I mean, Anthony Blinken is probably in, in uh, Jerusalem as much as he is in, uh, you know, in, in Washington, D.C. But in those days, for political figures to fly and visit face-to-face rather than let the business be done by ambassadors, this is complete shock. So the, amaz- the thing we lose completely now about Chamberlain is just how dramatic those visits were and how dramatic that Munich conference was. Uh, so you've got then that point when Chamberlain comes back from Munich, he has a piece of paper signed by Hitler saying Britain and Germany will never go to war again. He's hailed as a hero, but within a year, all that that piece of paper is worthless, a war has begun, and then on Chamberlain's reputation goes down, down and down, and in 1940, uh, he dies of, of painfully and, 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 and in a protracted way from bowel cancer. So it's a very sad end. Um, but then what's interesting in the war, and we were talking earlier about how Churchill's got to improvise, Churchill picks up that technique from Chamberlain of face-to-face meetings with other leaders and that's his way of trying to uh, strengthen Britain's position in an alliance with uh, America and the Soviet Union in which Britain is clearly the third party. They de- Britain, Britain doesn't have the power that those other two countries, the emerging superpowers, have. And Churchill believes that it's his skill as a diplo- diplomat will actually help to even things out. Uh and on one occasion when um, uh, the three of them are meeting and, and there's pictures of them, you know, you see the photographs, uh, the, the big three sitting there, uh, and somebody says they look like the Holy Trinity. And when this is translated to Stalin, um, who had quite a dry sense of humour, um, you know, for a mass murderer anyway, um, he says, uh, uh, if we are Trinity then he, Churchill, is Holy Ghost because he flies around so much. <laughs> and that was that was what Churchill was doing. So there's this strange sort of story. Those lives, Chamberlain and Churchill's, are interwoven. And by the end, Churchill is doing what Chamberlain did badly in 1938. And in a way but in a way that really shapes the future of diplomacy. Churchill is the man who turn, 
coins the word summit, the summit conference, the summit meeting, parley at the summit, as he says, a conversation at the summit. And of course, now we can't go hardly a couple of months yeah. without a summit um, somewhere. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I wanted so to ask- it all goes back to Chamberlain and Churchill, I would say. Right, right. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, Churchill's sort of role in the 1930s. Uh, you write that Churchill um, was happy to be that he had not been entangled, I think was the phrase, in government in the 1930s. I do think that oftentimes there are times when it's best not to be in the government um, for the purposes of one's future career. Um, how much did he benefit just by happening to not be as involved in the 1930s? And maybe would our views be different of him if he would have had to have made those choices? Yeah, well, it's a good question. And uh, I think that at the time, he did not feel happy about it. He was doing everything he could to get himself into government and uh uh, because the Tory party by then was saying, you know, Winston is just a little bit too volatile, a bit too uh, erratic, lack of judgment and so on. Uh, so Churchill is, 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 is grabbing around for causes that will attract attention. It's like the political equivalent of him going all over the world to fight in the 1890s. Now he's going around the, you know, the political arena and thinking, what can I do to make people think about me seriously? So he opposes the government's ideas about giving more power to India, more devolution of power to India uh, to attract attention. He um, takes the side in uh, 1936 of uh, King Edward VIII, who wants to marry uh, an American divorcee, which for the British establishment is like a, a double no, American and divorced. Uh, you can't have a queen of England, of uh, Great Britain of, like that. Uh, uh, whereas the government, the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, is clear that the king cannot do that. He's got to choose. Either he wants to stay a king or he's going to marry this woman, but he can't have both. And uh, Churchill really takes the side in a very romantic and flamboyant way about the king. And then the other one is the German case. I mean, the German rearmament. Part of why Churchill doesn't get taken seriously on German rearmament is because people just saying, yeah, well, this is Winston going on again about another of his hobby horses. And uh, this is all about just getting him back into office. So um, at the time, he he certainly doesn't want to be out. But if he'd had to be, if he had been in office, he would have had to have make those hard decisions that somebody like Chamberlain had to do in uh, 1938 about what you're going to do to stop war or try and prevent it. And the same is true about the second period when he's in the wilderness, as Churchill puts it, uh, in the political wilderness, a sort of biblical phrase, which is from 1945 to uh, 1951. And then Churchill becomes prime minister again in 1951. Uh, and in those years, the Labour government has to make the hard decisions about pulling back from empire, about pulling out of uh, India, where which has been the centre of British empire, pulling out of Palestine, uh, about uh, uh, totally changing Britain's trade, changing new relationships. It's basically a country in retreat. Churchill doesn't do retreats, and I think he was, in a sense, a uh, 
blessed with the of good fortune not to have those to have to make those decisions and that's why he can be so emphatic and clear-cut in a lot of his speeches where he can warn about the soviet threat or he can warn uh, he can urge uh, France and Germany to come together and form a European uh, community, uh, even though Churchill doesn't know where he thinks Britain should be in all that. But being being out of office, as you say, that the it's it's easy to, or it's much easier to put things in very simple terms. If you're in power, it's always compromise. And at crucial moments in Britain's history, Churchill doesn't have to get into that position. I think that's important when it comes to our views of him as well as it's easier to see him as the bulldog because he never has he's never in power when he has to make those difficult choices. But, you know, speaking of how he sort of saw German rearmament when nobody else did or very few other people did, there's another point in the book that I thought was interesting in that Churchill sort of understood the role air power was going to play a little bit more than everyone else. You, you write about how he thought it was very important to invest in the Royal Air Force rather than the Navy, that this the Navy was no longer the quote-unquote sure shield for Great Britain. Uh, what what led him to that position? Because it seems, seems so prophetic in hindsight. Yes. Well, he's not alone in this. Um, uh, it, it, but I think what gives him a perhaps a, a, a sharper perception is that this is somebody who is deeply read in English history. And uh, his views of history are uh, somewhat romantic. But one of the clear things is that Britain's position in the world, uh, a small set of islands, uh, growing to a global power, which is bizarre now as we look at it, given the geography. But that is owed particularly to the fact that Britain's, Britain's, Britain's navy, Britain's sea power, Britain's command of the seas. And Churchill can see that the era of sea power is going, that aeroplanes will have the potential to, as it were, jump across the, uh, the, the English Channel, uh, which Shakespeare described as, as the moat defensive. Uh, the moat defensive isn't going to work if you can jump over it with, with aeroplanes. Churchill can see that. There are other people who can see it. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt is also somebody who is way ahead of many in terms of the long-range significance of air power for America's sense of being a separate Western Hemisphere. But Churchill gets it. He can certainly see that the important thing is to build up the Air Force. What he's, Where he is caught short is really the feeling that uh, in, the, in the next war, if it comes, we won't have to do the kind of fighting we had to do in, uh, on the Western Front in the previous war. The French will manage to do that. The, um, the defensive, uh, the, the, the balance of power on the battlefield now has moved to the defensive uh, side of things. There won't be those kind of futile offences, attacks across no man's land that were so tragic in the First World War. So he underinvests in the army, or he supports the underinvestment in the army, he supports the uh, failure to really prepare a proper expeditionary force to go to France. And that's part of, if you like, what contributes to 
the French debacle in 1940. Certainly, the British do nothing to help the French significantly in 1940. So Churchill's sense of um, uh, of the future is, I think, influenced by his awareness of how we've moved on from the past. But I think he's also somebody who is, uh, you know, in so many ways, misses out on, on significant things in the, the Second World War. One of them, in terms of air power, is that he really has little sense of what is going to be the importance of naval air power, meaning aircraft carriers. Britain has them, but don't invest in them in the, in the way that um, uh, matter Churchill is amazed at the success of the Japanese in taking out two of Britain's great battleships uh, just days after Pearl Harbor. Um, and uh, so the the importance of naval air power is something that he didn't p- pick up on particularly at all. And he, d- uh, he did kind of miss read how the Western Front was going to play out in 1940, not alone in, in that by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm, I'm curious, what did he learn? Did he learn from that? What did he learn from it? What was he, was he able to take away any lessons and, okay, well, this has to change and this has to change fast? Uh, I think that his his lesson is is a cautious one about the, the Western Front, that uh, it's not clear in his mind that we will ever really develop a Western Front again, or certainly he he doesn't feel it's going to be the decisive war-winning weapon. What he wants to do is go back go back to a more traditional British strategy in dealing with a, a colonial co- continental dictator like Napoleon, which is, if you like, to gradually close the ring on uh, the the enemy on the continent of Europe by starving out uh, the enemy through blockades and so on, adding to it now, Churchill would say, the the, the power of strategic bombing, the, the, the air force that he's helped to build up. Uh, and the idea would be that you wouldn't get onto the continent for uh, a, a land battle until you were in a really strong position when Germany was on the was weakened that there were uh, uprisings already amongst the continental population uh, and that what you do in landing the army on the coast of France would be the kind of coup de grace that would to finish the Germans off the the really um, uh, the relentless strategy of attrition from the periphery, from the outside, would be the way to win this war. Uh, and that, I think, is his um, deeply cautious lesson about the, uh, about the, uh, uh, about 1940. He certainly thinks increasingly in, he has an old-fashioned sense of what military operations are about. There's, um, he's incredulous, for example, at the, the use by the US Army of, uh, uh, trucks and motor vehicles to move people around, to move supplies around. Um, and uh, the the amount of of, la- of of terrain that can be covered in this way and the, the degree to which people uh, troops can be supplied is something that really doesn't fit the, the sense of war that Churchill grew up with in the 1890s. Churchill's fact, the fact that Churchill had been a soldier is important in many ways 
Um, it gives him a well. It gives him a relish for war. To be perfectly frank, this is not something he's squeamish about, and he's a man of great personal courage. On the other hand, there is a certain sense in which his conception of war is still stuck in the nineteenth century, and the way that modern warfare is going was something that he didn't always pick up. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit then about, um, you talked about, well, total victory or victory in the Second World War. And I really want to focus on 1940, the time period in the war before Germany has attacked the Soviet Union, certainly before the United States was involved. I mean, what did, just from a realistic standpoint, you know, what did Churchill expect victory to look like? Did he think, well, this will be a total victory? Will somehow overwhelm Nazi Germany and, of course, their ally Italy as well um, at this point? Are we going to win or did it look more like, uh, well, you know, it'll some some point it'll end in a treaty um, and we'll need some sort of strategic victory in the treaty? Like, what was he shooting for here? Well, uh, uh, three days into being prime minister on the 13th of May, he says, you know, you ask what is my uh, our aim, victory, victory at all costs, however long and hard the, war, the way may be. Well, that's the kind of thing you need to say. It's sort of uplifting and all the rest of it. But with France out of the war, uh, he has actually no really credible explanation for how you would win, how Britain would win. So this is about whistling in the dark. It's about keeping the morale up. Um, uh, he has actually no strategy for the total defeat of Hitler. Britain's contribution in 1940 to the, to the eventual unconditional surrender of Germany is, I think, simply that the country does not cave in, does not surrender to, to Nazi Germany, is not invaded and occupied. Because if it had been, then I should think that Franklin Roosevelt would assert, would have had no option but to move to a, a policy of Western Hemisphere defence. The idea that the United States would be engaged in, in Europe and engaged after the war as well, I think that may well be totally, would have been totally different if one is playing what, what ifs. Um, uh, that, uh, and of course, what is important about Britain later in the war is that that's the essential base from which the attack on continental Europe, American-led, can be launched. Uh, there's no way that the United States could have invaded Hitler's Europe if this was all being done by troops and ships traveling 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to land on the coast of France. They need a supply base, a build-up base in Britain, which is what happens. Um, but the point is that Britain's resistance, I think, helps to prevent Hitler winning, Hitler winning victory. In terms of the Allies winning victory or Hitler being defeated, that war is decided by the combined contributions of uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, Soviet Union losing, what, 27, 28 million dead in the war. It is astronomical. Um, the United States losing far fewer casualties 
but making a tremendous contribution as what Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. The productive power of the United States uh, turned you know, to the, the, the single-minded pursuit of, of, of victory in the war is absolutely vital as well. So uh, the Churchill could not have won that war if Britain had not had those allies. And... You know, if we've we've talked about other um, books on this podcast about the Lend-Lease program and how critical some of those programs were to making sure that Britain was able to continue to fight the war before. Um, well, and listeners will remember this: that it was Germany that declared war on the United States, and, and not the other way around. Um, we're we're close on time, but I was hoping to ask one last question, and that was kind of getting into what you were saying just now. I'm curious about the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill, because certainly their relationship is important. A lot of listeners uh, might forget Churchill was half American, um, so. How how did Churchill see his relationship to Roosevelt and I suppose to the United States in a larger context? Because they're pictured so often, you know, together at these various summits, and they're they're sort of seen hand in hand. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you could talk about that relationship. Yeah, well, he I think Churchill is clear from uh, May 1940 that uh, the full. Uh, well, I think the chiefs of staff put it this way, the full economic and uh, financial support of the United States would be essential to an eventual victory. Um, They aren't at that stage reckoning whether America would get into the war or not. And Churchill certainly devotes all his efforts to helping to bring America into the war and uh, to building what he calls a special relationship with the United States because he sees that as being crucial for um, offsetting Britain's increasing weakness in the post-war world. But the other part that is significant, I mean, that's his geopolitical thinking, but it, the personal element is, is, is important, and that is the relationship with Roosevelt himself. As I've suggested, Churchill believes in uh, face-to-face meetings with leaders. That's how things get done, and he does that with Stalin as well. But in the case of Roosevelt, what Churchill really gets is uh, something about Roosevelt that most well, most Americans, most global viewers would not appreciate, which is that this man is a paraplegic. Um, you know, he is crippled from the waist downwards. Um, now, Churchill, one of Churchill's highest virtues in his mind is courage. And by courage, it's usually people who've won a, a military cross, a Victoria cross, get decorations for gallantry on the battlefield. What he sees in Roosevelt is a different kind of courage. Uh, and it's evident in, if you think of some of those pictures of wartime conferences, say at Tehran, where Roosevelt is sitting there with Churchill and Stalin in this, you know, all very almost lion-like uh, pose and so on. But this is a man who's, before those cameras are allowed anywhere near, he's got to be wheeled in in his wheelchair, heaved out, dumped on a chair, if the legs are crossed in an elegant way, somebody else has to got to cross them. He can't do it. He cannot move. This is a man who, who can't even get on the john every morning by himself. You know, So this is a man who experiences huge humiliation every day, petty humiliations of the sort that anybody with that kind of infirmity has. Yet he is also the man who... Uh, 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 who offers inspiring leadership 
to Americans, uh, controversial, but certainly a, a real dynamic force in the Depression and in the war. Uh, and that's something that Churchill never, never forgets. So uh, sometimes after Roosevelt's death in 1945, Churchill's talking about him and he sort of stops the conversation and he kind of, his mind has gone, looks out of the window and he says, I really loved that man. And by love, he means, you know, I just really admired, respected. Uh, there was something there that was wonderful. Now, Roosevelt never thinks in that way about Churchill. It's a working relationship. It matters. Uh, but for Roosevelt, there, there is, uh, you know, Churchill is a Victorian. He is a man still living in the age of empire. Roosevelt has a clear sense of what Henry Luce called, you know, the American century dawning. That is going to be when the US is going to sort out the world's problems. It's going to finally, uh, you know, muscle in on the mess that the Europeans have made after two world wars, uh, advance the process of decolonization, in a sense, bring to the rest of the world the liberty that the Americans claimed in 1776. Um, so Winston is, an, is not a figure that is going to count in that same way in the post-war world. So this is a, for him, it's a much more functional relationship. For, but for Churchill, there's something that is really in the heart about the way he looks at, at Franklin Roosevelt. And that's, a, that's, I think, a very fascinating and very moving part of, of the story. Uh, but again, not something that is immediately obvious to people unless you put together the story about Roosevelt's uh, infirmities and the way Churchill really admires men of courage. I think it's a fascinating story, um, and I think it's a great way to end today. So um, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, it's a, an amazing book. Obviously, we didn't talk about all of the people who were in it. That would be here all day. Um, and as much as I would enjoy that, um, we all have things to do. So uh, I want to thank you so much. It's It's been a great conversation. It's, it is a very unique look at Churchill and the people who contributed to who he became in the public imagination and in real life um, in terms of who he was. So thank you so much again. I, I just appreciated this conversation. It was a lovely chat. Well, thank you, Adam. It was great fun talking to you. All the best. Mm -hmm.